Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am absolutely excited beyond words for this hour. Dr. Peter Kapsner has joined me in studio for our uh, our normal, our Old Testament series. We're going to deviate from for one week because it is uh, Christmas week, and our special guest today is uh, Dr. Ian Paul. And I think we all know that we're familiar with, with, with the biblical story, but it is difficult to view it outside of the way we've always understood it. And sometimes the longer we have traditions remain unchallenged, the more difficult it is to undo some of the traditions that we've grown to know and to embrace. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 2 today, the first 18 verses, through a very different lens. And Peter, I sent you some of the notes on this a week ago. You did. You did. You've been puzzling over this for a few years. And and, and understandably so. And I appreciate what you just said about traditions because— it doesn't take away from all of what we've given our lives towards as as believers to be following Jesus to then also look backwards at times and say, you know, maybe the, the date December 25th as Jesus's birthday was more of a tradition that was glossed in later, and that's fine. Or maybe the Christmas tree didn't come around until many centuries later. Or one of my favorites is that Jesus was actually born apparently two years before Christ. And so some of some of those kinds mm-hmm. of, of when, when you look back at the historicity or the history of some of these things, um, it doesn't take away from the theological importance of them, but I love to explore some of the traditions that you're saying. What was the origin of them and, and what was true? Or maybe what are some ways that we can expand our thinking on them? Mm-hmm. And some of the traditional understanding of the uh, account of Luke chapter 2 does have some flaws in it, and we're going to discuss those today. Dr. Ian Paul has uh, talked about this recently, has preached on this, so I'm extra excited because we both yeah. had a love, particular love for uh, what we found to be very stimulating, a book by Dr. Kenneth Bailey on uh, Jesus through Middle, Middle Eastern eyes. And uh, Ian is a theologian and an author, speaker, academic consultant. He's a professor, at uh, adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, associate minister at St. Nick's in Nottingham, and managing right. editor of Grove Books. Ian, welcome. Mm. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm getting... Sorry, I haven't been on for a while. It's really, really great to catch up with you. No, we, we really have missed you. And I, I go to your blog uh, all the time, at least two, three times a week, I bet. And I always check Fantastic. to see what you're writing about. And I tell everyone to go. You can just uh, type in Ian Paul. Uh, the blog, or the uh, website is sefitzo.com. It it's, is. It's Greek word. Yeah, that's hard to say. Just say Ian Paul blog. Ian easier. Paul blog would be easier <laughs> to get to it. So welcome and Merry Christmas. And let's let's dig Thank into you. this uh, Luke chapter 2 account. Yeah. So when we look at Joseph, just for starters, he's returning to the village of his origin. And yep. let's just say for for the sake of discussion, uh, Middle Eastern historical memories are really long. Yeah, they are indeed. And it's really fascinating. I was just rereading Kenneth Bailey this afternoon, and he begins his book by saying, I lived in the Middle East for 60 years. And, <laughs> and that's really fascinating. That's where you know, many of his questions came from, from the text. Um, One of the things that I I say to people quite often is that when we open the pages of Scripture, we're we're doing two things. At at a spiritual level, we're encountering, you know, a word from the Lord, word from God for us. Um, 
that at a human level, we're doing something slightly different. We're going on a cross-cultural journey. And uh, you know, I sometimes joke with people and say, do you realize the Bible wasn't actually written in English? And you know, I, I kind of leave that there and they, they, they laugh nervously, but <laughs> it, it, it's written in a different language. And that means that there's an issue around translation. Again, those who are skeptical always say that translation or interpretation is a way of making the Bible say what it doesn't really say, but that's not true. Every every inter, every translation is an act of interpretation, and it's not only going from one language to another; it's going from one culture to another as well. So I say to folks, look, when when you are opening the page of scripture, you want to hear what what God is saying to you. you want to hear what the Lord is saying to you today, but. You do that through going on a cross-cultural journey. You're going into a text. The texts were written, they're given for us by God, but they're not written to us. They're, they're originally written, these texts, Luke's gospel is written in the first century by Luke, writing in a particular context and, and sharing the story, giving testimony with a particular aim. You know, he, Luke at the beginning of his gospel, he really emphasizes the fact that, that he's checked out with eyewitnesses what happened. But, but he's doing it in a particular context. I think the other thing I always point out to folk as well when reading scriptures, and we, again, it's easy to miss this, is that the, the gospel accounts are incredibly compressed. You know, I mean, if you read news stories on the internet or you plow through emails every day like I do, whatever, we, we get through so many, so many words. Uh, and the gospel writers have got a limited number of words because writing is expensive in the first century and scrolls are only a certain length. So they choose their words really carefully. So we need to recognize that the account we find in chapter two is very compressed and, and Luke has uh, is, is chosen his words really carefully. And in fact, there's very little there's very little detail here. He, he gives it in a really summary. I mean, I'm just looking at the account here from uh, Luke two, verse one to verse seven. The whole account of the, the journey, the going to Bethlehem and the birth is just seven verses. So so these these are things we need to be aware of. So the danger is that either we, we impose our own context, our own assumptions about our own culture uh, on the story, uh, or we, we want to fill in the details because, you know, we want to, we want to put on a, a play in our kid's school or we want to do something <laughs> dramatic at church. So, so we end up filling in the details and expanding it, but we do that, we danger is, we do that, and we have done that in our traditions from our own world rather than immersing ourselves in, in the world of the text. And, and this is where Kenneth Bailey says, you know, he, he noticed that, all that he'd learned from Middle Eastern culture, which in many ways is just there, things will have changed, but many aspects of culture haven't changed and they persisted through time, uh, uh, even though we, most of us in the West, are, are a long way from that. And he, that's, I think, what grated for him. He, he, looked, he read the story and said the traditional interpretation of it just wouldn't stack, didn't stack up in light of what he had known from just from the culture of the time that he lived in. So, Ian, thanks for that. We're looking at, at Joseph. I mean, he would be considered. Uh, you know, part of the family of David, which would be so famous in Bethlehem that the people in that town referred to it as the city of David. You know, the official name of the village of Bethlehem. Exactly so. And and Bailey puts together puts that together with a couple of other things. First of all, that, yeah, that's very well known. Secondly, that Joseph is going there and is going to his relatives. And one of the things he observes is that uh, even today in that kind of in that kind of area, part of the world, that hospitality is a major um, value. So if, if a stranger comes, then the first thing you do is you greet them and you, you welcome them. And, and if he's a relative, then uh, you, you welcome them into, into your home. I mean, he, you know, he, it, Bailey, Bailey says, you know, all he'd have to do is to say, I am Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Matan, son of Eleazar, son of Eliud. The immediate response would have been, you are welcome. 
what can we do for you? Uh, now, wonderfully, that's a kind of a, a value that the early Christian communities took over as well. That's certainly a value for us as well in our lives. We, we, we often want to open our homes to other people. But, you know, we, we most of us live in a culture where if a stranger comes along and asks something for us, we're suspicious. But Paley points out that the culture would have been very different. It, it would have been unthinkable for um, Joseph to look for some sort of public accommodation, which is what we think that is going on when we read in verse seven, uh, because there was no place for them, quote unquote, in the inn. Uh, and that leads us to a couple of other things. I mean, one of the realities of um, Bethlehem was it just wasn't a very large place. Uh, now, Luke says it was called the city of David. He uses the word polis, from which we get our language about politics. But the, the language of towns and cities in the New Testament, uh, we just, again, have to avoid um, projecting, you know, this was this wasn't New York. That's a city. <laughs> this, I mean, I was just reading some uh, archaeological work, and someone's estimating that from the archaeological remains, they reckon that Bethlehem was about 300 people. And again, when we go on to the later in in this passage, when the shepherds are going to look for him, they reckon that probably there'd have been about maybe five or six. Uh, toddlers in the village at that sort of time, just doing the statistics. So, it, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a big big scene. It wasn't a big city. It would have been local. People would have known each other again in that kind of village context. People would have have, have known each other. Many of them would have been related to one another. Uh, and so, it's it's un, it's unfeasible that uh, he would be looking for a public uh, public accommodation. He'd be going to look for a, a lodging with a, a relative that he knew. And of course, that then brings us onto the question of translation. Indeed. Because he said there was no room at the Cataluma. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Which, or, or Cataluma, depending on how you pronounce it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that would have been the upper room of a person's house versus the, the, the other Greek word, which I'll, I'll, I'll butcher, which is Pandohian, which would be more of the commercial inn where they, uh, the travelers would, accumulate, would ag- aggregate and show up and have a place to stay. Exactly so. And again, there's been a little bit of debate around this, but most, I think, most New Testament scholars, they, they don't really debate the fact that uh, we've, we've actually, in our English trans- some of our English translations, we've actually got the wrong word there. Uh, now, that, that's going to raise some concerns for our listeners, I think. But um, the, the reason why we, we can be pretty confident about this is because, firstly, the word kataluma comes in, in, in other places as well. So we, we know from the Greek version of the Old Testament that, that kataluma is a general word for where you'd, you'd put somebody up. But we know it isn't the word that Luke uses for an inn because in the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, he uses the he uses that word, pandocheon. For, uh, and, and, and the word pandocheon, pan means everything, like as in a panorama where you can see everything. So a pandocheon is, is somewhere where anybody can stay. It's a, it usually just have a big dormitory and a shared eating area and you didn't have to know anybody there. But, but as you say, the, the rooms in uh, New Testament times, and I'm just looking here in front of me, I've got a couple of archaeological reconstructions of rooms from, from excavations. And, and you can see the way that it's organized, and you, you'd have the animals in a, in a courtyard area, you'd have rooms for the family to do their day, day-to-day business around, and then you'd actually have an upper room where uh, either the family stayed or where they'd have, they'd have guests to stay. And, and that's the kind of picture. And again, the danger we have when we're reading this text is we're, we're projecting onto the text our own assumptions about how rooms are configured. For, for I, I'm guessing most of us, I don't know about you, we keep chickens, we've got a dog. Most of us don't keep our animals in our house. I mean, we do keep our pets in our house, but I don't keep my, I don't keep my chickens in my house. Uh, if I had a, a donkey or a, a sheep, I wouldn't keep it in my house. But actually... If you are a 
not particularly wealthy family at that time uh, in living in that region, you would probably had a one room house. And, and therefore, at night, when you're uh, um, you want to bring your, your animals in to be safe, you bring them into that that shared open area in the center of the building. Um, and uh, we, we've got other evidence from the rest of the New Testament as well that, that people lived in those kinds of shared open areas. So in, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, 515, he says, people don't light a lamp and put it on a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Well, that, that's only the case if you've got, you know, a shared open area where you can put a lamp and it, and it lights everything. If you live in a kind of a modern house like ours, where we've got a corridor and a room off and a room upstairs and so on, then that wouldn't work. So again, these are just little pointers to the very different kind of social context that this is all happening in. Mm-hmm. Ian, let me take a little break. When I come back, I want to talk about uh, the culture where a woman about to give birth would always be given special attention, especially in these rural communities. Dr. Ian Paul is our guest as we continue studying Luke chapter 2. Be right back. is our guest. He is a theologian, author, speaker. He does it all. We love him. We're so glad that he's here talking about Luke chapter 2 this Christmas week. And Peter, you got a question for Ian? Yeah, I just find this fascinating. Oh, Inter- just all the different details of the story. And Ian, I guess I would have had in my mind's eye that that when Mary showed up at whatever this door was, that it almost would have been, she would have been greeted with like, well, I guess we'll try to find some, some back place for you. But that would do an, an injustice to how they treated young women who were pregnant in that time, there would have been a great fuss made over Mary. Yeah, there would indeed. Yeah. And we know, again, from different biblical accounts that midwives were people who are skilled, who'd be in the local village. Um, Again, there wasn't the kind of a a health service that you farm people out to, Uh, you know, had the skills right there in the community. And she certainly would have been welcomed. And there's a couple of little interesting things just to notice about uh, the language saying uh, in, in Luke 2 verse 7, um, where again, a lot of our English translations say uh, there was no place for them in the inn. And we just realized that, that this isn't about a commercial inn. This is the upper guest room, the Cataluma. Uh, and in fact, actually, Luke uses that word later on um, in the Last Supper. Uh, there's an inter- really interesting symmetry where Jesus, uh, Luke mentions that the Cataluma in relation to Jesus' birth. And then in Luke 22, verse 11, he talks about Jesus going, asking people to go ahead and prepare the upper room for them for their uh, for for the, for the last supper together. And again, it's the same word, Cataluma. So it's it's clear that Luke is being consistent here. Now, it it may be that Luke's language, his grammar is a little bit strange here. And so some um, more modern translations say um, there was no guest room available for them. And if others that were coming to Bethlehem, it wasn't all that far from Jerusalem, so it could have been pretty busy with visitors, then maybe the guest room has already been occupied by somebody else. But but actually, I, I've actually stayed in a guest room like this. There's a little hotel in uh, Jerusalem by the Jaffa Gate, 
Uh, and uh, I went and stayed there years ago when I was living in Israel. And uh, actually, uh, because they wanted to have as many people as possible, you could see they, they gradually extended this little hotel. They built rooms on top. And actually, I, I stayed in a kind of little jerry-built room right on the roof, which was great because you had fantastic views <laughs> over the whole city. But it was quite small. And um, one other scholar has says, well, maybe the phrase here, the language is awkward. It maybe doesn't mean there was no room in the guest room because it was filled with somebody else, but but because there was no room in the Cataluma, no room in the guest room for her to give birth. Because, of course, when someone's giving birth, you need the midwives around, you need, you need people helping, you need all, all sorts of stuff. So so he argues, it, it says that actually there was no space for them in, in the guest room where they were staying for her to give birth. So they actually come down to the, the wider open courtyard of the house and, and they'd have had the whole family surrounded. And I think that that stuff, that all that ideas makes a huge difference to the way we, we talk about this story, you know, in contemporary preaching and, and, then, and in our churches. So, Ian, when we also think that there is time that Joseph would have had to have found accommodations for Mary, because yeah. Scripture, Luke says, while they were there, so it sounds like it yeah. wasn't, uh, the birth didn't happen on the night of the arrival, and of course, he, uh, she has relatives. She has uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth nearby. You would think the relatives absolutely. would say, oh yeah. my, come be with us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, it's interesting the way we, we kind of fill in the details uh, and make it more dramatic. And in fact, some of those details do come from uh, a, an early document called the Proto-Evangelium of James. I'll say that again, Proto-Evangelium of James. Uh, and that was written around the year 200. And it does have all sorts of embellishments and details. And incidentally, it's in that document, which is clearly fictional. And the early church fathers argued against it and said it shouldn't be included in the scriptures. It's not reliable. It's not based on eyewitness testimony. And it gives quite a different feel to the story. And it actually has Mary calling out to uh, Joseph saying, take me off the donkey uh, because I'm about to give birth, and they just arrived. And, and in fact, I think some of our traditions in, in, in when we're celebrating Christmas derive from that. And it's not what Luke says here in the Gospel, and it, it's not reliable. It was never in the early church taken to be a, an, an accurate description. Um, for one thing, it's very, very unlikely they'd have been riding on a donkey because most people in the first century would have been traveling, they would travel around, and they would have traveled a lot. I mean, again, the thing we forget is that the gospel writers don't mention these, these journeys backwards and forwards from north to south and so on. But, but any observant Jew would have been going down to Jerusalem for the three pilgrim festivals every year. And again, most commentators say it's very likely that, that Joseph would have combined this trip down for the purpose of the census to go back to his ancestral home with a trip to Jerusalem for the, for the pilgrim festivals as well. Um, and, and they would have walked. Everybody walked. That's why when we get to... Um, Palm Sunday, it's really striking that Jesus is riding on a donkey because all the pilgrims would have been walking. He'd have been the only one on a donkey. It would have been very unusual and he'd have been very visible as well. So I'm afraid we, we, in, our, in our Christmas pageants, we need to get rid of the inn and the innkeeper. Uh, we need to get rid of the stable because it isn't mentioned. And we need to get rid of the idea of Mary riding on a donkey too. So uh, we've got a, we've got a much more simplified story. Actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the author of this, that's 200 years old, what happened 200 years after the event was yeah. unfamiliar with Palestinian geography and didn't even really know Jewish uh, traditions. He wasn't a Jew himself. So, exactly. I mean, he had uh, them coming in uh, through a desert area. And of course that area is a rich farmland. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And and again, the language sometimes in our Bible, it says a desert area or wilderness. Uh, when Jesus, you know, feeds the 
5,000. It's called, it's a wilderness area, but they're all sitting down on the green grass. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a wilderness the way we think about it. So yeah, they, they would come down, either come down the Jordan Valley, which is very lush, or they would travel down on, on, on the coastal route again, um, um, very lush farmland there, and then climbed up the hill, hill to, into the hill country of Judea and Jerusalem. So yeah, Ian, there's so many stories going around like this, not just on the, the nativity story, but other stories. How did the early church decide what kinds of stories were going to be seen as reliable and thus carried forward into the scriptures versus those that they tried to reject? The, well, we know from the discussions about this, there's a number of criteria. One is, um, were these were these gospels, were these stories, were they linked back to the apostles? So either were they written by, were they believed to be written by apostles or, or did they have apostolic background to them uh, and Luke of course not an apostle but a, a compatriot of Paul so very closely associated with the early Jesus movement but but he says very specifically I've checked out the eyewitnesses and in fact people often ask how did Luke include all these details uh, how did he um, how did he for instance write down the words of the Magnificat which Mary uttered now again Luke is very selective he only mentions certain people um, but actually, there have been other people around as well. Um, when Mary is uh, utters the Magnificat, she's in the household of Elizabeth and Zechariah. So there have been other people present. But I find it very interesting that um, halfway through the book of Acts, uh, when uh, Luke is accompanying Paul and Paul goes to Ephesus, and then he goes to Jerusalem. And there's a little bit of a gap there where Luke doesn't seem to refer to what he and Paul are doing together. And, and it's perfect, it seems perfectly possible to me that Luke went off and he met with Mary as tradition that she lived in Ephesus for a while. There's another tradition she lived in, in Joppa, not far away from Jerusalem. So Luke would have been able to do his, his work and his research. So that's one thing. The first thing was, uh, does this go back to apostolic testimony? The second thing was, uh, does it agree? Is it consistent with the other Gospels? And one of the amazing things is the way that the different Gospels actually interlink very well. You see these things, these undesigned historical coincidences where we get a little bit of information in one gospel, another bit of information in another, and they actually fit fit together very well. Uh, th- a third one was, do we hear the, t- the, the words of God to us? Uh, is this, does God speak to us through these stories? Uh, and again, that's a judgment about you know how God is speaking to his people. And, and the four gospels fit those criteria very well. The other documents, like the Proto-Evangelium of James, doesn't. And then when you see that, you see all sorts of other issues as well. It's really striking in the four Gospels that we have that the story of Jesus is a fulfillment of all that God has been doing amongst his people in the Old Testament. Uh, Whereas actually these other documents, these other Gospels, don't feature in that at all. They don't mention that at all. And, and, And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to us, you know, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And the consistent perspective of Paul and of the gospel writers is that what what happened, what God has done for us in Jesus is the climax of God's whole plan all the way through from creation, all the way through uh, with the history of his people. And it reaches its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Ian, so fascinating. Uh, We're going to take a break here in just a minute. So I I think that you did such a beautiful job of even describing this traditional home, which would fit very naturally into the birth story of Jesus. Mm. I mean, you've got the the manger and the area for the animals right in their one-room home, uh, so they couldn't accommodate the birthing of Jesus in the upper room because they needed more people. They probably had to clear out the main living area and allow the midwives and the people who were helping and get the men out of the room to make a place for the birth to take place. So we're going to take a little break. We come back, continue our discussion with Dr. Ian Paul on Luke chapter 2. We'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. We are back with first ballot Hall of Fame guest, Dr. Ian Paul. I don't even know if that that line makes sense to Ian. Well, I, I don't either, but can you imagine anybody uh, voting against him? No, I, no, can't, I can't either. I can't. There's no way. We're talking about Luke Chapter 2 today. and Ian, maybe we talk about the family living room situation, the one-room mm. house. Maybe we should talk about the story of Jeth- Jephthah just a little bit, just to paint the picture. Yeah. Yeah, of course, because... Uh, when um where are we we're in judges we're in judges judges 11 and jephthah makes a vow that if god will grant him victory and the return home he will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house Mm. he never thought his daughter was going to come out horrible story yeah Yeah. and the assumption is that you know the door will open an animal will come out right because animals are in the house right because the animals are in the house yeah i'm I'm just looking at a lovely picture of the archaeological reconstruction here and i can see that uh, there's there's um, pillars, particularly in the Old Testament period, the houses had a series of pillars and, and the pillars underneath the pillars there'd be shelter and then a, a, a platform there. And you'd climb up on a ladder to uh, an upper room above it. And then in the courtyard within the house area, you'd, you'd have your animals, and you'd bring them in and out. Uh, and it's a much more integrated way of life. The picture I've actually got has got a donkey and it's got some chickens. Uh, so that's reassuring for me. But I, I don't think <laughs> they actually had chickens in the Old Testament period. Um but it's interesting that, that culture does persist. These sort of habits, they do persist through time. And I, I guess we've been through such an extraordinary period of cultural change in the last 20, 30 years or so uh, that, that it, it's easy for us to forget how stable cultural practices, particularly in rural areas, have been. Um, certainly, you know, in, in my part of the world, in uh, continental Europe, um, people do still keep animals underneath their houses. I mean, I don't know what Practice is common around in, in different parts of the States. But certainly if you go to France or you go to Switzerland, you'll, you'll see a chalet building and animals will be kept underneath because in the winter, that's the place that's warm. And of course, it actually creates warmth for the people living in the house. But again, in, in, in poorer rural areas, all, all, you know, all around the world, people would still keep their animals with them in, in the home. And that's why, again, this is one thing that's kind of puts us off the trail. When people have said this to me in the last couple of weeks, you know, she gave birth to the firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths. She laid him in a manger. And somebody said to me, well, a manger, that's a food trough for animals. You don't keep your animals in a house, do you? I've got a carpet in my house. And I want to say to him, yeah, well, <laughs> they, they lived in a, in a different culture. Um, there's a lovely little um, hint about this in uh, a later story of Luke's gospel, where Luke heals a woman that's bent over. And uh, he heals on the Sabbath. And of course, he's getting criticized by the religious leaders. And it's really interesting. In Luke 13, uh, he says, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the manger, from the fat the same word that's used in Luke 2, 7, and lead it out to give it water? Well, he's talking about untying the animal from the place when, you know, they've woken up in the morning on the, on the Sabbath and, and, and they need to untie the animal and lead it out. Well, you only do that if the animal is in the same place that you are. So it's 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 in it's within the the household, and in fact, really interesting, a, a later manuscript from the ninth century, one that was translated into Arabic, so it was still in that cultural context, actually slightly amends the text to make it clear to others, saying, "Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey and from the manger and lead it out from your house in order to give give it water outside?" So, uh, again, you see the little pointers to this this very different cultural scenario than the one that we're used to and one we kind of impose on it. 
Ian, as you're going through some of these different reference points in Scripture, is this a pretty common thing that happens in the Bible, that when you get into one story, some of these reference points, like a, a single-room home that you see it in other places, like in, this, in the story of Judges or maybe in the upper room of the disciples, it just it seems interesting how, how much different patterns and themes continue to show up and, and help us understand a given story. Yeah, it, 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 I think that's true. And uh, one of the things I found, I uh, before I um, went to college, to university, I had a year out from uh, after after what you would call after high school. I'd call it school, uh, and before going to university, and it, it's pretty common here to do that. And one of the things I I did is I went and, and lived in Israel, and I learned a bit of Hebrew, and I worked on a, a kibbutz, so a collective farm, and I found it completely transformed the way that I read the scriptures. It's it's somebody's a friend said to me once, it's like going from watching television in black and white to watching television in color when you begin to see the cultural context and the assumptions are made. And, and it makes sense of all sorts of little eyewitness details. I mean, one of the things, for example, in in, in that part of the world, um, well, I think two things for me particularly, in, in where I live, we have clouds in the sky all the time. Uh, when you see a cloud in the sky, it, it, it has no significance because it rains here a lot in England. Uh, in some parts of the States, it's the same, and other parts it's different. But 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 in, in that part of the world, in the Middle East, you know, in, in the... From April time through to September time, it's pretty much blue skies. If you see a cloud, it really means something. And this makes sense of the language we talk about in the Old Testament in the Psalms about God coming on the clouds. And then the New Testament, uh, Jesus coming with the clouds. What does that mean? It, it, it doesn't mean it's a rainy day. It means this is the presence of God. This is something really unusual. And that's really struck me. Uh, again, in the, I mentioned the parable of the, 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 the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And, and Mark's version says, Mark alone says, they sat down on the green grass. Now, why is that significant? Because uh, in the summer period, the grass would, would be dry and brown. And, you know, here in my garden, my grass is always green. Talking about green grass doesn't mean anything. But in that culture, in that context, when you know that grass is only green in the winter months, in the rainy season, but it's, it goes brown in the dry season in the summer, it actually tells you something about the time of year. So, yeah, you begin to see, you begin to put these things together. And you go, oh, okay, I see how that fits. I see how that how that works together in that cultural context. Well, Ian, maybe for the sake of the discussion, the Good Samaritan took the injured man to the uh, Pandohian. Uh, yeah. That was the commercial inn. So there's the distinction. Yeah. He took him to the inn, and it was that commercial Absolutely. inn that he took him to. Yeah. Yeah. And and that that's really interesting because it adds another dimension to that story as well, that, that, that you know, Jesus says this person was a Samaritan. So uh, on the one hand, you've got a, a racial divide here. You've got a, you've got a religious divide between the two. And, and this person is showing love by crossing the divide. And, and he's also doing something shocking. This man has no relatives, whereas normally, again, you, you'd look for help with your relatives. And uh, when you've got a culture where people welcome each other, where they look after relatives, where, where where your tribe counts. That can be really positive in terms of community, but it can be really negative in terms of saying, well, if someone doesn't belong to my tribe, I'm not responsible for them. Their tribe needs to look after them. I'll look after my own tribe. They can look after themselves. And actually, Jesus is saying, look, uh, you need to love. Love love of your neighbor means means crossing over those boundaries, crossing over religious and ethnic boundaries, crossing over boundaries of family loyalty as well. So, we don't just see those who belong to our tribe as the ones we're bothered about. And actually, that plays very much into the language we find, particularly in Paul's letters, where where Paul repeatedly talks to believers and addresses them as brothers and sisters, brethren. Uh, and so actually, the, 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 the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, is actually redefining who is in, in and out, who is part of my tribe, who is my family. 
And Jesus says this explicitly in Matthew chapter 12, you know, where he's he's in a he's in a he's in a house. He's in a, a one room house, an open area where people are crowded in. And of course, they come into the house and, and they're all packed in there so they can all hear him. And people are outside the door as well. And then his, his mother and his brother and his sisters come along and he say he's crazy. We got we got to we got to take him out there. And the crowd said, hey, your mother and your brother and sisters are here. And of course, in cultural context, that would make the big demand on Jesus. There's no one more important than your family. There's no one more you should honor than your mother and your father. And so the fact that his mother is outside, the crowd will be expecting you to say, hey, guys, I've got to finish preaching. I've got to leave now because my family needs me. And you know that family comes first. What does Jesus do? He turns that inside out and says, who is my mother? Who are my brother, my sisters? Those who do the will of God. So Jesus is beginning to the kingdom of God breaking in the, the discipleship following Jesus actually takes priority. And I guess we've kind of lost the impact of that. But that, for anyone in the first century, would have been a really shocking claim for Jesus, Jesus to have made. Mm-hmm. Ian, I think the tradition has us believe that the uh, people of Bethlehem rejected them. Uh, would we, as first century people living in Bethlehem, agree with that? Well, that's really that's really interesting. But I think that, again, what I found in, in looking at this story, reading Bailey and doing my own study of the text as well, is that uh, I found it really striking the way that re-understanding the cultural context is reinterpreting it and also paying attention to what Luke actually says build together. Um, some people say, well, you know, if it was rumored that Mary was pregnant, you know, out of wedlock, there'd have been a sense of shame. And we do pick that up in, in Mark, Matthew chapter one, where Joseph is wondering what he should do. And an angel speaks to him in a dream and says, yeah, you should marry her. Um, it's really striking that in Luke's gospel, there's no hint of that rejection at all. There's no hint of shame anywhere. And in fact, uh, there's, there's none in the story, but neither is there when you look outside. Now, again, we read John's gospel, John chapter one. He says he came to his own. His own did not receive him. But whoever did receive him, he gave them the power to become children of God. So all through all through the fourth gospel, there is that theme, that tension between those who accept Jesus and those who reject him. But actually, when we stick with the gospel of Luke, we need to just notice that the themes that emerge you know, right at the very beginning, we find that the first characters are introduced are Zechariah, who's on the road for doing the high priestly duties, and Elizabeth. And she is also from the house of Aaron. She's mm-hmm. also from a priestly family. So you've got here God coming into a situation where he's, he's, he's revealing himself to pious, observant religious Jews here. So, yes, Jesus does in his ministry go and reach those who are on the margins on the edge. But he also comes and speaks to those who are pious and observant. And the theme all the way through these early chapters of Luke's gospel is, you know, the the priestly people receive him. They celebrate what he's doing. Uh, He goes to the temple of his dedication and Simeon and Anna are there and they receive him and celebrate him. The, The consistent theme at the beginning of Luke's gospel is that although this is so surprising and unexpected, yet... Those who honor God, those who worship God, those who are devoted to God, they receive Jesus and they receive him with joy. And they receive this news with great joy. So the theme here is one of celebration, of reception, of you know, wonder at, at all God is doing. And, and I think that's a, that needs to shape our, our celebration of Christmas a little bit more. Mm-hmm. We're learning from Dr. Ian Paul. And when we come back from break, I want to ask him about the Star of Bethlehem and the shepherds. And we'll do a little recap. Um, We'll be back in a minute.
Peter, did uh, Ian say that he's from England? I, you know, I, I think he did. Is this one of those expensive long-distance calls <laughs> we have to get out of right now? <laughs> yeah, I think we, we better wrap this up right on point. Yeah, because, we're going to have yeah, to cut it, you short. It, it we didn't spending. know it was one of those long, expensive calls. <laughs> but um, So, yeah, I want to talk about uh, the shepherds, and I want to talk about the Star of Bethlehem. So did, it says did the Magi were the only ones that saw this star. Yeah, we're going back to Matthew there, aren't we, Matthew? I, I think we are, yeah. Did I jump? Did I jump? I think I did jump to Matthew, so that wasn't fair because we're focusing on Luke 2. So wow. my understanding was the Magi were the ones who saw the Star of Bethlehem. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that is true. And there's a huge debate about the star. I, I don't know if I'm going to disappoint you. I don't have a very strong view about the star. That, that's fine. That's fine. That doesn't disappoint me at all. I really want to focus then more on the shepherds. Because I think I've heard all kinds of opinions about the shepherds. They were yeah. the, 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 the borderline criminals of society, and they uh, were outcasts. And I think, well, let's see, David, I, Moses, you, Abraham were all shepherds. I, yeah, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Peter, did you have any more thought on that? We get this perception, Ian, that the, mm. the shepherds were seen as the, the lowest caste among the Jewish mm. society, that they were seen as, as the least likely to have experienced the, the angelic choir and, and that God was making a point and coming to them to tell them the good news. But are we missing something in that story? Do we understand that correctly? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, I'm just because I read a blog post about this a couple of years ago, which I'm just I'm just re-mugging up on. The the idea that they were the lowest rung actually, I think, came from later uh, Jewish documents, Babylonian Talmud, several centuries later. Mm. Uh, and also from um, uh, Aristotle didn't like shepherds, apparently. Okay. When we, cons- yeah, okay. When we consider, though, the birth and the chance that it could have very easily happened in a private home with all the care and support that the other women would yeah. have given... Uh, yeah. That that that's an understanding that w- would be very reasonable, um, because uh, the shepherds would have, when they came and saw the the, G- the Jesus and the family, they would think to themselves, "If you're not being well taken care of, we'll take you to our meager homes and take care of you." Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I think the the thing, one of the things that persuades me, I mean, you mentioned this that I mean, Luke obviously uses shepherds as. Uh, the shepherd is an example in um, Luke 15 of someone who searches for the lost sheep, and that's an image of God. God is a shepherd to his people. Obviously, you've got, you've got Psalm 23. Mm-hmm. Also, you have the Old Testament language in Ezekiel about the leaders should be sheep, sheep should be shepherds for the sheep. And Jesus note, Jesus notes a couple of times in the Gospels, Matthew 9, Mark chapter 6, that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. So he goes and teaches them, and he describes himself as a good shepherd and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think the Gospel shepherds are pretty positive. Yeah, would it, was it the uh, rabbinic traditions that would have labeled them as unclean? Yeah, I think so. So yeah, it, it, may, it may be in response to the fact that shepherds are such a positive thing in the Gospels. Yeah, so yeah. that's a great point. The, the Lord is yeah. a good shepherd. Moses, Abraham, David, yeah. shepherds. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so I, I can see rabbinic traditions saying, ah, they are unclean, they are dirty. And yeah. that's, the, yeah. that's what we remember that's about them. That's a bad thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and Ian, okay. as we're as we're sort of puzzling over some of this <clears throat> as well, if you were to just start doing some research on some of these things, is it is it pretty easy to start getting back into the way that early people would have understood this? I mean, how would you advise people to just start that process? Because it's really interesting to try to get back into the minds of of what life really was like back then. Uh, two, <laughs> two things. One is the internet can be our friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, really interesting. I uh, I interviewed a friend uh, about his PhD thesis and about how you uh, can we be confident in the scriptures uh, in the light of the fact there are so many different 
conflicting interpretations. And he said, you know what, the trouble with the internet, it's made us suspicious of experts. And sometimes we do actually need to talk to people who, who've done the homework and they know what they're talking about. And if you read something online, when I read something online, the first thing I check out is who's saying it and what's their credentials. So, yeah. And then let's talk about, again, I think we've brought this up once already. But the best the, place to look at my the, blog, of course. <laughs> the, the quality of hospitality yeah. um, was the shepherds, had they seen, again, the family, a frightened young mother, a, a desperate yeah. Joseph. Yeah. If they would have seen this, they yeah. would have offered their homes. They would have said, come, yeah. Our, yeah. our women will right. take care yeah. of you. They would have moved that little family into more comfortable surroundings. Do you want to say, do you want to say any more about shepherds? Well, I don't really know a whole lot more about shepherds. I, I heard, you know, over the years, the traditions in my head where they were the lowest form of life, their yeah. testimonies would not be admissible in a court of law. They were borderline Ooh. criminals. And that just didn't resonate with me because I kept thinking Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Yeah, Moses, David, Certainly. Abraham, all shepherds. Yeah. I don't know yeah. where they got that rap. And then I thought, well, maybe it's the rabbinic traditions. And you can yeah. find any group that's going to not like another group. Yeah. And, and, and it, interestingly, um, there are two sources for that kind of idea. One is, as you say, from the rabbinic traditions from the Talmud a couple of centuries later. Interestingly, quite a few Greek writers as well. So Aristotle uh, in a different part of the world and also writing uh, several centuries earlier is how also has a very negative view of uh, shepherds. And, and, and that may be where those are coming from. But actually, as you say, they seem to be very positive. And in fact, in Luke's gospel, shepherds seem to be positive. So the shepherds are the one who received this news of peace. But later on, you know, in, in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus is giving examples about people who are seeking that which is lost. So uh, the the parable, of course, of the uh, the prodigal son. But before that, the woman who's searching for her coins in the house and cleans out the house and rejoices when she finds it. And before that, the shepherd who uh, loses one of the sheep and then goes off. Now, some people say, well, the shepherd was a fool, but he's not portrayed as that. He's portrayed as someone who is faithful and diligent and, and an image of God. Uh, and of course, Jesus criticizes the uh, leaders of Israel for, for, for being failed shepherds. And, you know, a couple of times in the Gospels when he sees Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 6, he sees that the people are sheep without a shepherd. Then he, he, he goes and he teaches them and he cares for them. He is a shepherd. And then in John 10, he then describes himself, says, I am the good shepherd. So there doesn't seem to be me any hint of a, a negative betrayal of the shepherds there. One of the things that, that's quite interesting, again, going back to our text and saying, how do we put together reading Luke chapter 2 with uh, understanding the cultural context is it's really interesting that when the the, the shepherds go to the uh, the home and they and they find uh, the baby just as it was told them, there's two things to note that first of all, uh, Mary and Joseph, the people who are there, don't seem to be surprised or shocked that shepherds come. Shepherds are there in the region, but also when the shepherds go and tell other people that they they, they praise God for all they'd heard and seen as it's been told to them, uh, nobody's amazed that. The shepherds are doing that. What they're amazed about is the content of the story. They're amazed about the story about the angels. So I, I agree. I think I think there's, there's, there's no sense that the shepherds are outcast. I mean, this is another whole, this gets into us in another whole area, which we probably haven't got time to explore today, which, which is that, again, quite a part of our tradition is that Joseph and Mary were poor and, and, and hard up, and they were at the bottom of society, and Jesus came into the poorest family. I don't think, again, that's true. There's no evidence for it. Joseph was seemed to be part of a, an artisan business. And when Jesus calls his first disciples, he calls the fishermen who, who own their own boats. And even James and John, their family, they 
have hired men there so that they are people running running small businesses and again we just need to be really careful about imposing our concerns uh, our own context from the outside onto this story it, it's much i think the story is much more straightforward than we make out mm-hmm. well certainly the the middle eastern people in the first century of course had this incredible capacity and they wanted to show uh honor they wanted to show hospitality and it's interesting that if in fact jesus was uh, born in a uh, first century home that the mm. shepherds upon showing up and being there would realize that yeah they are welcome and when yeah, they absolutely. confronted jesus uh he was always uh, yeah. uh was always for the people and of the people yeah and this is <laughs> people often say to me well okay if this is how it all was what are, what are you going to do what are you going to do in your <laughs> your, tra- your traditional carol service and you you know I, mean, well, I don't know what you guys do one of our traditions is that you involve all the all the f- different members of the family you involve the kids and you you know we just had this last sunday we had a kind of spontaneous nativity where people come dressed up as one of the characters in the story and and we have in the school play you know some kid has always wanted to be the innkeeper where jez and Mary knock on the door and say there's no room at the inn and people say to me, well, how, how can you do, how can you tell the story in a way which is more true to what Luke tells us? I said, well, you know, it was really easy. I did it a couple of years ago on Christmas Day in a service with kids involved as well. And and I wanted to make the point that this whole thing happened at the heart of the home. So I, I set up a scene where I, I was sitting watching TV on Christmas Day. I'd had my big Christmas lunch. I was, you know, ready for an afternoon nap. I, <laughs> one of our great traditions here is we always listen to the Queen's broadcast at three o'clock in the afternoon. I was sitting there and then somebody said, hey, you've got to do this, this Christmas scene. So I, I left the living room for the front of church. I put down my TV remote control. I went and I set up the, the scene in the traditional scene in the stable with all the animals and with the shepherds and all that. And I got everybody dressed up. We had all sorts of costumes, had great fun. And then I was going to leave that I say, I've done that thing. I've done the Christmas thing. I'm going to go back to my living room and I'm going to relax and I'm going to watch TV and so on. And I, I, I prompted my wife to stand up in the, in the congregation and say, hey, Ian, you told me it didn't happen like that. It happened in the home. I went, oh, I rolled my eyes. So what I then had to do is I, I got the nativity scene I'd created on one side and I got everybody to get up and walk across and they had to come and sit in my living room because that's what it would have been like. And, and actually, that had a very dramatic effect because one of the things that I'm always puzzled by is the fact that we make a big thing. I know you guys have Thanksgiving first, but we make a really big thing of Christmas as as, as the winter festival. And, and we do loads of stuff. And we put special service on at church and we invite our neighbors and so on. But, you know, so few people actually stay on. They, they, so few people comparatively come and stay on a church and want to find out more about Jesus and what he's done for us. And I think that's because we've set this story up to be about poor Jesus, neglected by others, out in the stable. Hey, we'll go and visit him once a year at Christmas time. We'll kind of pat him on the head and then we'll go back to our ordinary lives. We'll go back to our living room, we'll pick up our remote control and go back to TV. And I think the point I was wanting to make is say, hang on, you know, if if this is how the thing happened, if if Jesus really came to a home where he was welcome with open arms and he was the center of what happened, that's what he needs to be now. Jesus isn't someone you can just go off and visit once a year and think you've done your thing and, and, and be nice to him. Actually, he demands that we welcome him into the center of our lives. We show him hospitality now uh, and that he makes a difference. You know, when, when, you've got a, when you have a, a child born in the middle of the home, then everything else has to stop. Everything else has to sort of be rearranged around you. You can't just ignore it and carry on with life as it is. And, and that seems to me to be a really good, good image of 
you know, what God calls us to this Christmas, to welcome him into our lives and find that it's going to make all the difference. Yeah. Ian, it's been so great to have this discussion with you. Thank you so much for making time for us. I know you're super busy and uh, you've got a lot going on, but you've, you've made, uh, made my day. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You bet. Peter? That's great stuff. I just I couldn't stop thinking about the idea of somebody could take this material that we're talking about today, a pastor in a church, and maybe take all of Advent some year yeah. and just really retell the story and then end with the kids coming up and, and showing it in a different kind of way. Because I just saw this story yesterday in, yeah. in church, and, and because I knew we were going to be talking about this material, I thought, yeah, well, it looks like I'm going to have a little redo here. <laughs> That's all the time we have. Thanks very much to Dr. Ian Paul. And that wraps up our show for the day. Have a great night, everyone, and Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.